to God's word, let us begin in a word of prayer. Father, we do pray that you would abide with us, abide with me, abide with those seated here. God, I pray that your presence would lead us, that you would guide us through suffering, through temptation, through whatever we face in life, God, we pray that you would abide in us. Prune away, take away those things in us that are evil and wrong. But God, fix our eyes on you this morning. Fix our eyes on you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you can open your Bible to Psalm chapter 119. Psalm 119. We've been continuing through our series on the book of Psalms. And looking at Psalm 119 in particular, and we're going to be looking at verses 81 to 104 this morning. So you can turn in your Bibles with me to there, there, and I will be reading each section as we go along. I'm not going to read it all here at the beginning, but as we go through various sections of this psalm, I'm going to, to read it. But I want to start by reading some lyrics of a song. I'm not going to sing a song. Don't don't worry. Um, I actually did sing a song when the Liberia when the team came to Liberia. Um, but there's a big difference in context between Africa and Los Alamos, New Mexico. So I won't be singing in the middle of this sermon. Um, but this song is from Hank Williams, who is one of the most popular country singers in the mid 20th century. So uh, last century, um, and he was he was a great popular songwriter. He wrote some hymns and a lot of different songs. And the story on this song that he wrote, uh, the backstory is actually pretty sad. It's ironic and tragic. He was on his way back to Montgomery from a show that he had just done, and he had drunk, drank too much and become drunk, and he was um, in the back seat of the car, and the driver um, just says, "Hey, Hank, we're about to make it home." And so Hank Williams gets up in the back seat of his car from his his stupor, and eyewitnesses say he he wrote this song between there and Montgomery as he saw the lights of Montgomery as he came home. So you, you're probably familiar with this song. It's actually one of the mo- more popular hymns of the 20th century, ironically and tragically. It says, I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. So I hate to ruin this song for you. Um, and there's aspects of this song that are actually good biblical truth, right? Jesus came to me like a stranger in, in the night. As I was wandering lost in my sin, Jesus came to me like a stranger in the night and showed me his glorious light. And I saw that light. But there's an underlying theme here that is contrasted with biblical Christianity. And that theme is that the Christian life has no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. This is a pop culture version of Christianity. It's not a real, robust, biblical Christianity. 
But this version is so popular within our American culture and even within our American churches that it's become a theme within American Christianity. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. Like I said, it collides with biblical Christianity. There's a temptation for American Christians when they go through suffering to refuse the, to acknowledge the existence of that suffering, to refuse to look at that grief, to look at that affliction in their life and see how it's impacting them and just say, no sorrow in sight, no sorrow in sight. But that's not what the Bible, how the Bible teaches us to deal with suffering and afflictions that we go through. In the Psalms, there's no cheap, no darkness, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. There's nothing that parallels that in the book of Psalms. Rather, the Psalms invite us, and biblical Christianity invite us to look at pain and suffering and darkness in the faith's Faith and trust that God's word will pull us through that darkness and suffering. Now, don't get me wrong. Biblical Christianity isn't some sort of Eeyore-like Christianity. It's not some glum, puddle glum, if you know Chronicles of Narnia, glum, morose, just, just depressed type of Christianity. And you're all, all you see is darkness. That's not what the Psalms teaches us. no. Like I said a few weeks ago, the Psalms give us an anatomy of the soul. They, they show us every sort of emotion and response and every sort of circumstance, how we're supposed to live our lives before God. The Psalms allow us to look our suffering in the face. They allow us to look prosperity in the face and receive that with thankfulness. But this morning's section of the book of Psalms is, is particularly looking at our sorrows, our afflictions. So the Psalms produce emotionally strong Christians, emotionally strong Christians. And that's a little bit of a buzzword these days. But the thing is, you don't have to go to some uh, pop psychology to become emotionally strong. Where we should go is to the scriptures. We should go to the Psalms to learn how to be emotionally strong Christians. The Psalms teach us to be emotionally strong and allow us to walk through the darkest times through unswerving confidence in God and his word. So the Psalms really produce Christians who are sorrowful, yet at the the same time always rejoicing. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see how the psalmist directs us in that path, how we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And we're going to see the paradox of the clarity, the crystal clear clarity of God's word as it meets the muddiness and complexity of our own lives. That's what we're going to see this morning in the book 
of Psalms. And there's a distinct movement in these three stanzas. So when we say stanzas, that's just a way to say these eight verses, these eight verse sections that follow the Hebrew alphabet, this stanza, these eight verses, and there's a distinct movement between these three stanzas. The first stanza is all about suffering and affliction. It's all about the complexity of life and how life is overwhelming the psalm writer in that moment. But then the tension is released in verses 89 and 96, and and we see a crystal clear clarity of God's word that pulls the psalmist through that suffering and affliction. Then in verses 97 to 104, we see the psalm uh, shift his focus from a focus on his enemies and on the affliction that they're causing to a focus on delight and happiness in God's word. So that's what we're going to see this morning in these three stanzas. So let's turn and look at verse 81 of Psalm 119. Let's look at this first stanza. And in this section, we hear the psalmist, the psalm writer, cry for God's intervention and help. He's in the midst of this affliction, so he cries out to God. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I've not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end to me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies from your mouth. So in this stanza, in this section of the psalm, we see a suffering believer. We see someone who's desperate. Someone who's at the end of his rope. Just look at this. My soul longs for your salvation. When will you comfort me? How long must your servant endure? Help me. They have almost made an end to me on the earth. So this is the bleakest part of this psalm. Parker's done an excellent job at showing us how affliction is a common theme that runs throughout this psalm. And last week, we, Parker showed us how the psalmist was reflecting on his affliction. He's reflecting on the affliction that he went through. And the psalmist says, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So last week, it was a reflection on the affliction, a reflection on the suffering. But now in this week, the psalmist is looking the suffering in its face. He's in the midst of it. He's going through it and he's writing this prayer. He's praying this prayer to God for help and deliverance. And we get a picture of what this this suffering is doing to the psalmist's soul. We see what what it's doing to him, the effect that it's having on him. And he gives us this metaphor. He gives us this metaphor My soul is like a wineskin in the smoke. In verse 83, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. 
I didn't think it was appropriate to bring my wineskin with me to church this morning. That's a joke. I don't have a wineskin, don't worry. Um, and I also didn't think Kirk would like it if I set a fire up here. Um, but have you ever sat at a campfire and put a, put a, the kids, this isn't, only do this if your parents allow you, okay? Put a styrofoam cup on there or a plastic bottle and just held it over the smoke. Held it close to the coals where the smoke is just coming off. What happens to that styrofoam cup or, or plastic bottle? It, it begins to melt. It slowly withers and, and turns black and dark and, and becomes purposeless, right? It's, it's lost its purpose. It's become ruined. It's, it's shriveled. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here. I feel like I've lost my purpose in life. I feel like my soul is shriveled up. I'm dry. I don't have anything to offer. I'm feeling this pain, this, this long pain that's, that's just eating away at my soul. John Calvin put it really well. He says the psalmist points out not only the severity of his affliction, but also its lingering nature that he is, that that is, he is tormented by a slow fire, by the smoke that slowly proceeds and burns and dries little by little. So he longs for God to heal him. He longs for God to save him, to reach down and pull him out of that fire and breathe new life into him. That's what he's longing for. He doesn't want to be in that spot. He doesn't want to be in that fire. He doesn't want his soul to shrivel. He wants God to rescue him. So he cries out to God to revive him. And yet, in the midst of that affliction, in the midst of that fire, in the midst of, of what he's going through, his only sustaining strength is the word of God. He says, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. And I don't think this is some sort of self-righteous cry here, say, God, look at my righteousness. I have not forgotten your statutes, even though I'm burning away in the smoke and you're letting me burn away in the smoke. No, I think the psalmist here is actually at the end of his rope. He's holding on. He's clinging on in the midst of his suffering, the midst of his affliction. And he's saying, God, your word alone is my only hope in life and death. I'm not going to run away. Where else can I go? Where else can I go except to your commands? I am going to walk in obedience even in my suffering. Sometimes we might be tempted to, out of, out of disobedience and, and perhaps a blasphemous spite to when, when God doesn't give us our way to walk away from God and his commandments, it's almost like a toddler. If you don't give me this, I'm going to do this. But the psalmist says, no, that's not what I'm doing. I am walking in your commandments, God, even though I am afflicted. So he cries out, when will you comfort me? God feels distant to the psalmist. He feels far away. In your steadfast love, God, give me life. 
So he shows us how to walk through suffering, how to walk through the pain that we experience in our lives and all the while hold on to God himself in his word. To hope in God's promise. Verse 81, I hope in your word. Matthew Henry once said that whatever our circumstances, we must not cool in our love for the word of God, nor let that slip out of our minds. No care, no grief must crowd out the word. Some drink and forget the word. Others weep and forget the word. But in every circumstance, both in prosperity and adversity, we must remember the things of God. And if we be mindful of God's statutes, we may pray and hope that he will be mindful of our sorrows. Though for a time, he seems to forget us. So we might feel like God's forgotten us, that God's far off, that that God doesn't rip us out of that fire, but he is near to us. And so we hope in him and we hope in his word. That's the proper response to suffering and anguish that we experience in our life. It's it's faith-filled and hope-filled prayer to God for deliverance and not letting go, walking in obedience in the midst of that. Not saying no more sorrow, no more night, but just facing it and letting, crying out to God, God, I can't get myself up off the floor, only you can. So help me. I hope in your word. But let's look at the cause of this suffering. The cause of this suffering, what is the smoke Or what is the heat that shrivels the psalmist's soul in this passage? In verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. So the primary smoke or the primary heat that the psalmist is experiencing in his life is persecution. It's his oppressors who are after him or are seeking to snuff him out. Persecution is a reality for Christians. It's just a, a, a reality that we are going to face in our lives. We will face tribulation and we will face persecution. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we scared of persecution? Are you scared this moment of the mocking and the ridicule that you might face at work if you talked about Christ? Are you scared of what your friends or family might think if you were to name the name of Jesus and speak of his commandments to us? Are you afraid of those at school? Are we ashamed of the gospel? How, if we are afraid of mocking, if we are afraid of ridicule, how are we going to stand when the heat gets turned up? When litigations happen? When our bank accounts are threatened, our homes are threatened? If we can't stand a little mocking, a little ridicule, how are we going to to stand in the day of true, real, intense persecution. 
Matthew Henry again says, true biblical Christianity, if it's worth anything, it's worth everything and therefore worth suffering for. Brothers and sisters, this, this book, this Bible is worth suffering for. This Jesus is worth being ridiculed about. This Jesus is worth being mocked about. He's worth it. Let him be your delight. And, and all the, that mockery, it will be like, like water off of a duck's back. It won't stick on you. It will, you will be immovable and unshakable in ridicule and any sort of mockery that you face. So the psalmist is writing particularly about persecution here. And whenever I think about persecution, my mind always goes back to Elijah. Elijah in in 1 Kings 17, that wicked queen Jezebel, who was the symbol of idolatry in in Israel, is breathing murderous threats out against Elijah. And the Hebrew literally says Elijah saw her threats. Those threats that, that Queen Jezebel was, was after Elijah, they became the center of his focus. He became transfixed on these threats and his soul started shaking and he went to the wilderness. He fled to the wilderness. He tried to get away from Jezebel. And Elijah could have been praying this prayer. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end to me on the earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. So Elijah goes into the wilderness and he despairs of his life. He despairs of life itself. He gets under a tree and lies down. And I love the way that the Mongolian translates what he says. He, the Mongolian says, Ada Bafla, which means now I'm finished. And he lays down as if to die. But God revives him. God revives him and brings him to meet with him in his word. So God reveals himself to Elijah in his word at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And that's exactly where our psalm is going this morning. That's what happens in the next stanza. God revives us in his word. He revives us in his word. So the psalm is talking about physical persecutors, most specifically, but there's another sense in which this psalm applies directly to us. The Apostle Paul was clear that we not only have physical persecutors in this world, but our enemy is seeking to devour our souls. He's seeking to snuff out our faith and divide our churches, destroy our churches and family, and that enemy is breathing down our necks and we have to be aware of him. We have to be aware of him. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul says, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who's dug pits for your faith. 
And so often in America, Satan's tactic is to lure us into these pits to snuff out our faith by ease and comfort and prosperity, prosperity and apathy. So it's an indirect tactic. He's trying to lure us into these pitfalls and destroy our soul through our own apathy and our love for comfort. But sometimes, sometimes it's much more direct and there's more direct persecution or direct suffering that we experience. And, and our faith is, Satan is trying to choke out our faith. He's trying to sift us like wheat. So those are the two basic tactics of our enemies, the scheme, his schemes, the seductive pleasures of the world, which lure us or the direct adversity and operate, um, opposition of suffering and persecution. That's why I love the book of Revelation. Revelation just symbolizes this so perfectly. It gives us a picture of this so perfectly. The enemy of our souls and also the woman, the great harlot, Babylon the Great, who is, is out to lure in the saints. But if she doesn't lure them, she's just out to kill them and snuff them out. John says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hands a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations." And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. So Satan and the world are out to destroy your faith. The insolent have dug pitfalls for your faith. And Satan's either trying to lure you or he's in direct opposition and trying to Turn your gaze away from God through suffering and specifically through persecution. So we cry out for deliverance to God. We cry out in the midst of our opposition, our own temptation and our suffering, and we fall down like Elijah, but we cry out to God, God, revive us. Our hope is in you. When will you show me your steadfast love? So we cry out to God. So now let's turn and look at the next stanza. There's a shift here in verse, verse 89 to 96, where the clarity of God's word transforms the perspective of the suffering believer. So let's look at verse 89 of Psalm 119. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand to this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Yet I will never forget your precepts, and by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. 
The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So in response to suffering and the questions and the doubts that it provokes, the psalm gets a, a clarity here. He gets a clarity. He gets a, a view. And the key word here is forever. 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 With all the questions and doubts still ringing in his head, the clarity comes into view. And forever, the Lord's law is established in the heavens. One commentator said, The despair of the previous section is met by the reassurance of these verses. So we ask when we suffer, God, when will you comfort me? And the answer comes forever, forever. There's a permanence here. There's an eternal nature here to the word of God. And the psalmist points us to the sky. He points us to the sky. I love New Mexico vistas. It's the... New Mexico is one of the greatest gifts in my life. I love coming back here. I love, I love the, the expanse of the skies. When I was going out to Georgia for the first time going to college, I started to get claustrophobia as we drove out I-20 and, and the trees just started closing in, my, in on me. I couldn't see any, any sky hardly anywhere. But, but when I come back to New Mexico, it's like this, this clarity that that comes and, and I can see a third of the state. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. So we can go out. And I encourage you this week to just go out and enjoy the mesas. Enjoy the wonder of where you live. Just go out and look out over the mesas and say, forever your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. You have established the earth and it stands fast. So God created the world with a mag- majestic splendor and glory. And the psalmist is saying, go look at it and remember how much more powerful and majestic is the word of God that he has given you. It's his eternal word that holds all these things together. His eternal word has established the earth. Or go out and look at the New Mexico stars. The stars, the Lord has fixed those stars in their place. It's poetic language. He's fixed those stars in the place. He's chartered the course for the sun. And the word of God upholds all those stars. And it upholds that sun. Forever is his word. It will never be shaken God is the one who chartered the course for the Rio Grande. He's the one that put Black Mesa in its spot. He's the one that let Pajarito dig down its roots in that same spot. He's the one that carved out those mesas that we get to enjoy. But guess what? It's his word that holds all those things together. It's as if the psalmist is saying, look at the sky, the word created it, and that wor- the, wor- the same word that created it is revealed in the law. 
It's revealed in the law. He says, look at the permanence of the mountains. The words that established those mountains has spoken to us in this book. In the Bible itself, God has spoken to us and made himself even more crystal clear in the words and pages of Scripture. So the psalmist is saying, look up at the sky, look out out at the earth, but don't let your gaze stay there. Remember the Scriptures. The source of that sky, the source of the earth has spoken to us clearly in his word. And it's established forever. So the emphasis here is on the permanence, the permanence of God's word that sustains these things. Jim Hamilton, one commentator, says God wor- God's word stands fixed in the heavens because of his faithfulness which continues from generation to generation. So there's a permanence that really transcends us, a permanence, an eternal nature that is above us, is beyond us, that has spoken all things into existence and spoken to us in his word. So the the psalmist is inviting us to dwell in that permanence, to dwell in that forever, to rest in God who is forever. We are fleeting. We are like a vapor, like a breath, and we're gone. But God's word is permanent. And you can see what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, yeah, my troubles, they are so small. They are so short in comparison with the eternity of God's word and the permanence of the sky. My life is short and so are my troubles. Verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand to this day, for all things are your servants. All things are your servants. All those elements of creation that we've just been thinking about, all those things are servants that sing the praise of our eternal God. And all those things, if they had a voice to speak, they would say, read your Bible. It's clearer there. So the psalmist is inviting us to rest in the permanence of God. A generation comes, Ecclesiastes says, a generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place it rises. So there's this fleeting nature of our lives. There's these fleeting nature to our struggles, but there's this permanence that we are placed in, a permanence of the word. And yeah, we know the world will end one day, but in comparison to us, the sky is permanent. To the end of the age, these things will remain. Our time is limited on this earth. And that's a comfort. That's a comfort because it's a comfort because specifically the eternal God is our dwelling place. The eternal God is is our dwelling place. And our troubles are going to be over before we know it. But if we've made our home in the eternal God through his word, if we abide in him, we have nothing to fear. 
Satan can throw his worst at us. The world can throw its worst at us. But if we have God as our home, we have nothing to fear. So this psalm is calling us to delight in something eternal, the eternal word of God. I was up in the Hamas this week and, and camping, and as I, I sat there in, in the place where I grew up, uh, just looking at the pine trees and thinking, these pine trees, not much has changed since I was young. The falls are still there. The rocks are still there. The pine trees are still there. The no, no campfire sign is still there. <laughs> not much has changed. I've changed. And almost on cue, my mom, as we walked down to the falls, said, I just remember when you were two years old, splashing in that water. And it just reminded me how fleeting my life is, how small my problems are, how soon my problems will be over. So whether we're two and splashing in that river or whether we're 30 or 80 struggling with doubt and temptation, God's word doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. It's forever. It's forever. So let's look at how the Messiah is revealed in these Psalms, just in, in these stanzas very briefly. So like I said a couple weeks ago, the Psalms point us to Jesus Christ. The Psalms point us to Jesus Christ. And I believe that what the, the, Psalm, the Psalms would like us to see Jesus clearly. The Psalms point to him. Jesus himself said the Psalms point to him. So we're supposed to read this book. We're supposed to read these Psalms and see Jesus. When we go through trials, when we go through persecution or opposition, and we are stuck right here, we can't get outside of, of this trouble that's right in front of me, the, the crystal clear clarity that we're supposed to see is Jesus Christ, and he's revealed in his word. So Psalm 119, verse 81 to 96, which we've seen this morning, reveals to us the Messiah. Verse, verses 81 to 88 reveals the suffering Messiah. That first stanza, that first eight verses that was so bogged down by suffering, bogged down by oppression, is supposed to lift our eyes and see Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, who strengthens our hands and comes next to us and, and picks us up. Matthew Henry is so clear in this section in his, com in, his, in his commentary. He says that this section of Scripture foresees the Messiah who suffered for us. So it's not just you and I who feel this way. It's not just you and I who cry out to God for hope and rescue. Jesus himself cried out to his father as he was under oppression and persecution and suffering. Jesus himself felt like a wineskin in the smoke. He felt the heat of his persecutors. 
And you see this all through Jesus' life, but particularly in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he is sorrowful, even unto death. Mark 14, 33 talks about Jesus as being greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. He tells his disciples, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. So when you pray this prayer, when you pray these verses, when you make them your own prayer, you are praying this prayer with Jesus right beside you. Jesus is your merciful and gracious high priest. He's the one who passed through suffering into glory. He's not suffering now, but he knows how to sympathize with you in your weakness. He knows exactly what you need in that moment. And he, in his eternal power, as the divine word of God, can breathe new life into your suffering soul. Jesus is with you as you pray this prayer and you cry out to God from the depths of your, of your soul. Secondly, Jesus is the one who perfectly delighted in the law of God and all the promises of God are yes and forever, using our key word from this psalm, are yes and forever in him, in Jesus. So Jesus is the one who perfectly delighted in the law of God. He is the one who perfectly embodied the law of God and fulfilled the entire law of God so that we could look at him. And the law is not a just condemnation against us, but the law becomes our delight because it points us to Jesus who fulfilled the law for us. The law of God was his delight. If the law had not been his delight, Jesus' delight, we would have perished in our affliction. Jesus is the one who can perfectly pray that. That his delight is in the law of the Lord without one ounce of sinful doubting. Without an ounce of disobedience, Jesus is the only one who perfectly embodied this psalm. So our delight and confidence in the Bible, our delight and confidence in the the law is intrinsically tied up with our delight and confidence in Jesus Christ himself. It's in Jesus, the word of God. Without Jesus, we would forever languish. We would forever mourn like wineskins in the smoke. We would be overpowered by that enemy who is too strong for us. Satan's too powerful of an enemy for you to fight. The world and his systems are too powerful of an enemy for you to fight in your own strength. We need Jesus to conquer Satan's sin and death for us and render us victorious so that he can bring us out of our suffering and show us his eternal word, the vistas of eternal life. 
Jesus is the one who trains us. Jesus is the one who conquered our enemy, but then also gives us strength to fight our enemies and our oppressors. David says in another psalm, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. They were too mighty for me. They're too mighty for me. They're too much for me to handle. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. For it is you, God, who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. For by you, God, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap against the wall. God trains us for battle. He trains us for battle against those who are oppressing us. And he does that by fixing our eyes on the word and on Jesus Christ, who is revealed in the word. Forever, the word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So this morning, trust in that word. And as I close, I just want to read this last stanza because it's, it's a sheer delight. It's a sheer delight in God. The psalmist has prayed in your stead, in verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. And in verse 93, he says, I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. You have breathed new life into me. You've heard my prayers that I was praying for you to you in desperation. And now in this last stanza, as he moves on, his delight is in God's word. And it's just a love song for God's word because it's pulled him out of the darkness. So just read it in, in verse 97 and then we'll pray, starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I have understood more than the aged, for I kept your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for they have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you from our hearts. And we say, oh, how sweet are your words to our taste. God, thank you for pulling us out of darkness, pulling us through darkness and giving us true, robust happiness that is fixed on the eternal word of God, not on our circumstances. God, the circumstances may stay the same, but our delight remains in you and you, O oh Lord, are eternal. Teach us your way, O oh God, and unite our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.